Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Now, Leon Taylor is also well-known, we all know, for their tailor-made clothes, but you also know they're ready for their custom-made and ready-made clothing as well. That's right, clothes that are right there on the rack that you can buy and pick up, and they'll make the alterations included in the price. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. And of course, then you know, if they want something tailor-made specifically just for you, then they can do it. So whether it's tailor-made, whether it's ready-made, or whether it's custom-made, it is for you and you specifically. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you and happy to take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware. Delaware and downtown Indianapolis. Well, with all the controversy in Washington, D.C. over the FBI and Department of Justice seizing documents from Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's private residence in Florida, we thought it'd be a good time to kind of talk about Criminal Procedure 101. In other words, what goes into a search warrant? How do these, how do these things get executed? So when it comes to the criminal law and matters, I couldn't think of a better person to give a call to than my old college law professor, uh, Professor David Harris, who teaches at the University of Pittsburgh. I had him uh, 20 years ago at St. Louis University. So, David, my friend, always good to chat with you, sir. Great to be back with you, Abdul. I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, thank you. Uh, so help us out here. How exactly does a search warrant work? The way a search warrant works goes all the way back to the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. We can probably uh, all remember in our history books, the American Revolution took place because the colonists, the leaders in the colonies were being mistreated by the king's authority uh, and by the king's operatives. And among the things that they objected to the most were searches and seizures of their businesses and their homes because those uh, searches and seizures were done without the authority of law and without anything definite uh, um, uh, uh, containing that authority in any way. So our founding people put the Fourth Amendment in the Constitution, and it says, that there shall be no unreasonable searches and seizures. Of course, that's a big word, unreasonable. But then it gets particular. It says, if you want to do a search, you have to have a warrant. And the warrant must be supported by a level of evidence. That level of evidence they call probable cause. So you have to have some facts, some real evidence. Uh, Not as much as it would need to convict a person of a crime, but probable cause Uh, And the warrant must particularly describe the place to be searched and the things or persons to be seized. And that's a very, very specific response to the British occupation of the colonies because they had general warrants that basically just said, hey, you know that Harris guy? Just go into his house and look around, see if you can find anything. Now, when you have a warrant, it's got to go before a judge. There has to be a sworn statement, an affidavit from the police, the FBI, whoever wants to have the warrant that says, here are the facts that support probable cause that a crime has been or is being uh, um, uh, is being committed and uh, evidence of that crime can be found at the following place right now and then particularly describing that evidence. So it's a procedure that they have to go through. Now, when we talk about uh, going through and actually look, like you said, the warrant must name the place to be searched and things to be seized. When the government shows up at your front door and they knock, uh, how does that work? They say, hey, we got a warrant, Mr. Harris, Mr. Shabazz. uh, Can you step outside? We need to look around for, for a bed. Yeah, that's basically it. It says uh, they say we have a warrant. They'll show it to the person if asked. They will leave a copy of the warrant 
uh, along with a list of anything that has been seized with the person or the person's spokesperson or just in the space if nobody is there. Uh, and it will describe everything that I just talked about. And then they can go and look any place that that evidence could be within that business or home. So in other words, if the warrant is for stolen 60-inch TVs, they can't look in my kitchen junk drawer. But if the warrant is for bags of marijuana, of one ounce, etc., they can look in that drawer because it could be in those places. Um, and so it's, you know, it's tightly controlled by the warrant, and the warrant has been granted by a judge, and the judge is independent of the police. We say a neutral and detached judge. So somebody is making a decision. Yes, you have enough evidence. Yes, you may go into this place. Yes, you may look for these things. Our guest on the program today is my old law professor, uh, David Harris. He teaches at the University of Pittsburgh, but I had him 20 years ago at St. Louis University. So we're kind of doing sort of a criminal procedure, criminal law sort of 101 with all the controversies uh, involving Donald Trump, the Justice Department, and the FBI, and the search warrant that was served on Mar-a-Lago. Uh, David, you made an interesting point uh, that uh, they can, when, the, when the government comes to search your home, they can only look in places where they could possibly find what is they're looking for. How about things like documents? Because documents I can fold up and you know put between my mattress. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Abdul. So the smaller the thing that they're searching for, the more places they're going to be able to look. If it's documents, we all know that documents can be on pieces of paper, but they can also be in digital files. So in many cases, they look into digital spaces like computer hard drives. They, uh, they duplicate the hard drive and take it with them. Um, but if what we're talking about is actual physical pieces of paper or files, they can look anywhere those things can be stored. And if they have information, as they appear to have had from the inside, that would tell them these files are kept in such and such a desk drawer, a file cabinet, an ante room, a shed, whatever it is, they can go into those places and look for them anywhere those things can reasonably be within the building to be searched. And I think you bring up an interesting point that uh, that the FBI probably had some assistance or someone on the inside saying, hey, if you want to know where these things are, look in this room, look in this closet that's got the extra lock on it. That way you can actually put it in the warrant for the judge. Absolutely. And those things would appear in the application, the sworn statement, the affidavit that the judge examines to decide whether to grant the warrant. What we have seen so far, as far as documents, is we have seen the warrant itself, which refers to some, uh, some particular statutes that have alleged to be, to be uh, uh, broken or violated, and then the list of things that have been taken, these particular files of records and documents. We haven't actually seen the application, the sworn statement yet, but that would almost certainly reference any evidence that they have. That's where that evidence is stated. And I'm reading between the lines here. A lot of people are doing that. But I think it looks very, very much like somebody with inside information has been talking to the FBI and telling them, no, you look in these places. I think there are documents in there. And it's interesting, too, uh, the fact that uh, Donald Trump's attorneys were, I guess one of his attorneys was there, and they said she, she said she wasn't allowed to, to go inside and actually sort of supervise the search. Has that ever happened in, in your recent memory, my friend? Uh, th that somebody would be allowed to supervise the search, or or, or just or, 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 or to witness or participate or witness the search, so to speak. Well, if it's a search of your house, they don't always take you outside of it and make you stand outside. 
uh, but you're not going to be allowed to interfere in any way. And without knowing a lot more about what happened on the spot, we don't know why they didn't allow this particular attorney to witness the search. We also know as of this morning that one of President Trump's lawyers had already given a sworn statement uh, saying uh, that there were no classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago, that they had all been returned, and the FBI seemed to already know that that statement was false. Therefore, they may have doubted that this person who, say, wanted to supervise them or watch them do it uh, couldn't be trusted. I don't know if it's the same person or not, but legal team members had made this what was a false assertion. Our guest on the program today is Professor David Harris. David teaches law, criminal law, at the University of Pittsburgh. I also had him as my law professor 20 years ago at St. Louis University. So with all the things going on uh, in Mar-a-Lago involving the president and search warrants and affidavits and the whole nine yards, I think it would be a good time to get uh, Professor Harris on the program. We're going to do a criminal law, uh, criminal procedure uh, 101. Uh, David, one of the things that, that's kind of sort of popped up in, the, in these conversations has been uh, – the, the, the Trump folks saying, hey, they could have just called the president and said, hey, you got these documents, give it to us. They didn't necessarily, they didn't need to exercise a search warrant. Uh, does that happen? Or was that sort of maybe, hey, we didn't get all the documents, so that's why we actually, actually had to uh, go, go get a search warrant? Well, apparently it was the latter, Abdul. Uh, there had been uh, a considerable number of documents that were taken down, according to all reports. Some were returned, but not all. And uh, the FBI and the National Archives, which is where those documents belong, the National Archives, they don't belong to a former president. They are government property. They knew that not all of them had been returned. And in point of fact, they had asked the Trump team to return them all, and they had only returned some. They also took the intermediate step of serving a subpoena and, and saying, bring them back. In the instance of a subpoena, no agents go down there. Nobody goes into anybody's house or business space. Uh, the, what that is is a court order saying you must bring those back, bring those things with you. Uh, and apparently that was not complied with either. So they kind of got to the last step. There was real evidence that there was classified information of some nature down there uh, and, and government documents that did not belong there, whether classified or not. And they were getting statements from, as I said, Trump's legal team that said uh, there's no more documents here when they had evidence that there were. So they tried everything else before doing this. I think that's a point people are missing. Uh, also, Professor Harris, uh, one other question I had for you was uh, when the government shows up uh, with a search warrant, and we're not just talking about the FBI, we're talking about you know, local police or sheriff sure. or, or state police, those type of folks, uh, can you dispute uh, in court, maybe not, not at the moment when they're serving the warrant, but can you dispute and say, hey, Your Honor, this evidence should not get in? Yes, they can do that. But by the time they are doing that in court later, remember that a judge has already looked at the affidavit, the sworn statement of probable cause, and okayed it. And then, at least in a hypothetical uh, uh, we're putting together, the police have followed the rules in serving the warrant and performing the search. In that situation, uh, yes, the use of that evidence can be contested. And it's, you know, it does happen that the evidence gets thrown out if there is eventually a prosecution 
And we don't know if that will happen here or not. But by that time, the government holds the strong hand because they have gone through the procedures and a judge has okayed it. And it's more difficult to get it thrown out then than if a police officer had just kind of run into the house and said, hey, give me that. You know, then you'd get it thrown out. Now, uh, we know about we talked about the search warrant. We talked about uh, sort of the, re- the the inventory receipt, uh, the things that the, the things that are that are that are kept. We haven't necessarily talked about the probable cause affidavit, uh, which obviously yeah. the federal government is keeping sort of silent. Uh, tell, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, is it possible to, to, to get it or does it show up in trial or, or, or eventually is a probable cause affidavit made public? Well, in, in the usual course of things, especially if the subject is a sensitive one, the government does not want to disclose the affidavit for a number of different reasons. Number one, it may compromise sources and ways of gathering information and intelligence and tip off people who are still committing crimes. Now, that may not be the case here, but certainly if there's a confidential informant, they're not going to want to give any clues as to who that might be. Number two, they're dealing with public people or a public company or even a regular private person. If that affidavit gets out and they decide, well, there was not enough evidence uh, to charge a crime here, the person's life can be ruined. The public company's share price can go down. So you have to exercise extreme caution about handing this information out. But in a case like this, where the subject of the search, uh, uh, Mr. Trump, has himself pointed to uh, this is illegal, there's no evidence, it's unwarranted, and so forth, um, there's actually a fairly strong case for putting it out there. I mean, as long as you could protect your sources and methods, um, I predict that that will come out eventually. Um, It would always come out if there was a prosecution using the evidence. And we're a long way from hearing about whether there will be charges, a prosecution, the evidence will be used, because then uh, the the charged person would have a right to challenge the search. It may be hard to challenge it, but they'd have a right to it. But here we're in the preliminary stages of, of consideration of that. The FBI and other people will be going over the documents. So that's how it stands. Now, uh, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, like I said, this past week uh, that Merritt Garland, uh, the U.S. attorney, uh, actually had to, the U.S. attorney had to come out and actually make a comment uh, about uh, about the case. Uh, was it public pressure or did, were things just getting out of control? Because normally uh, the government doesn't really talk about criminal cases, at least not like yeah, this. That's exactly right, Abdul. For the same reasons I was saying before, they don't want to stain anybody's reputation. They usually won't confirm or deny the existence of an investigation or even whether a search took place. That's about as far as they might go is to say, yes, we searched and we had a warrant. Um, But here, I mean, you could look at it as Garland's hand was really forced uh, by all the statements by Trump and his allies. Or you could look at it like, look, we're calling your bluff because this whole time, remember that Trump and his representatives, they had copies of these documents of the search warrant and the list of things that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. They didn't have to get Merrick Garland to do that. They just wanted, I think, to create the problem, the firestorm and the blaming uh, and showing that Mr. Trump was the victim without actually releasing the information. And you notice once Garland came out, gave his five-minute statement and said, we're asking for the judge to let that stuff out, and it came out, 
you notice all of a sudden the stories changed. Lots of people started taking a different tack, and some of them even quieted down because they could see that there were real questions and there's real legal vulnerability here. Exactly, because there were some folks saying that it was a, it was a GSA's fault, that the president was in a hurry. And I was just like, what? You guys just just get your story straight. If, yeah. If, if, yeah, you're gonna yeah. Le- <laughs> if you're going to be less than honest, at least be consistent about being less than honest. But that's, there you go. That, that's just me. Uh, David Harris, professor, uh, political, uh, professor of criminal law at the University of Pittsburgh, with us for a few more minutes on the program today. Uh, David, uh, we, we talked about uh, you know, when warrants are needed. Uh, are there any situations where the government can actually come in and without a warrant? Yes, there are. Um, And these are warrant exceptions. Um, The way the the Fourth Amendment is written, you're supposed to have a warrant to search any place, especially a home, uh, and to seize anything or any person. A seizure of a person is an arrest. But there are many, many exceptions to that rule of always having a warrant. There are more exceptions than you would probably guess. Uh, And most of those have to do with situations just being practically you can't get a warrant like uh, if it's a search of a car the car could be driven away Uh, if it's a search of a person who is running away uh, that sort of thing let's say a person uh, the police are in pursuit of somebody on foot and the person runs into a house that doesn't mean the police can't pursue them into a house though they would normally need a warrant to go into a house um, so all of these things recognize the practicalities of the situation. Um, the law isn't uh, ignorant in this regard, uh, and, and the courts have created lots of room for police and law enforcement generally to do their work in a practical way. Um, but when you have a situation where you know that there is evidence of a possible crime in a particular place, Uh, And you can actually describe what you're looking for, whether it's the loot from the bank robbery or the stolen silver or the documents that never should have left government custody. Uh, Then you get a warrant and you do it according to procedure. If I remember the old phrase from law school, it's called exigent circumstances, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, you, you got it exactly. So if if they're chasing somebody from the robbery of the pizza joint and the person runs into a house, well, you don't need a warrant to go into that house. Uh, Professor Harris, uh, we've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, what is the one thing that, that folks who aren't attorneys like us, uh, who are just regular people you know, with regular jobs and kids, so they're trying to follow this, what is the one thing they should know about, about search warrants and, and about sort of what happened at Mar-a-Lago? Well, I guess I would say, number one, that remember that all these protections that we've discussed uh, here are there for all of us, not just the protection of uh, powerful people like an ex-president. They protect all of us in the sanctity of our homes and our persons and our things. Uh, The other thing to remember is that there could never, never have been a search of Mar-a-Lago with a search warrant without the most clear uh, need for it and absolute you know, laser-focused scrutiny by everybody involved, not just the agents who did it, but the director of the FBI, the attorney general himself, and a federal judge. Whether they decide to go ahead and do that because nothing else has worked uh, and they really feel that there is real danger of exposing uh, sensitive information by having it laying around in the ex-president's house, whether that's a wise thing or the wise thing politically, that's not really their question to answer. Um, they have a case 
They're trying to get those papers and those records back where they belong. They've tried repeatedly. They've been rebuffed and even lied to. And they don't do something like this, which is unprecedented. They would never do it without the most extreme caution and the most important reasons to go ahead. All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been my old law professor, David Harris, at the University of Pittsburgh. I had him 20 years ago at St. Louis University. So, David, my friend, as always, thank you very much uh, for making yourself available and sort of giving our audience uh, criminal procedure for dummies or criminal procedure 101. I'll let you make I'll let you throw on the, the, the course number. <laughs> Abdul, it's always a pleasure to be with you and your audience. You take care. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.